So how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Every Easter, I remember one thing I have forgotten since the previous year. That is that our experience of the Easter narrative, starting at Palm Sunday and going through to Good Friday, right to the evening meeting on the road to Emmaus, we're following this narrative in real time. Same number of days that took Jesus from riding the donkey to the upper room. That's the same number of days over which we experience Easter ourselves. And is it possible, I wonder, if we ourselves feel an echo of what the disciples may have been feeling on the Sabbath after Easter? Though it's not recorded, you could understand them looking at each other and saying, so what are we gonna do now? As we heard in the gospel, it was in just such a moment. The doors were locked. Everyone was still scared, looking over their shoulders maybe, perhaps making sure they hadn't been followed. And then Jesus appeared to them and invited Thomas to feel his wounds. I wonder if your reaction to the next line which Grace read is the same as mine. John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I know you should leave people wanting more, but just imagine what stories John might have left out of the retelling here. I feel like saying, John, please don't be brief on our account. Take as much papyrus as you like. But like Thomas, how happy are those who have not heard all the stories of other signs that Jesus did and yet have come to believe? In the times when Jesus wasn't appearing to them, they may have felt a bit perplexed. You can imagine them saying, what are we to make of what's happened? What Jesus has done and what he keeps on doing. And this is where for me the narrative timeline picks up again. Though, and, and we know that in this kind of in-between time for the disciples, which lasted just a few weeks until Jesus ascended to heaven. And then there are a few more days until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and really the church began. So in our reading from Acts, we heard one of the most well-known tastes of what life was like for those in the early church, that there was not a needy person among them, that everyone sold their land or houses and brought the proceeds of the sales to the apostles. Then those proceeds were distributed to each according to their need. That's such a strong moment in our experience. It's the definition in the church's mindset of kindred living together in unity. It might be idealistic, yes, but it's also the height of our aspirations as a church, isn't it? And to some extent, I wonder if it must have felt like an answer to those who were wondering what they were going to do next. It's this, 
It's being together with the spirit as the church. We tend not to go over the next bit in the story quite as much. And it's not chosen as part of our readings for today. But in the next few verses, we uh, learn about Ananias, who was found to have kept back some of the money for himself. He didn't turn it all over. So what happened to him when he was accused of this? Well, he fell down dead, was taken outside and was buried. They didn't even tell his wife, at least not for a few hours. And when they did, they accused her too, and she too fell down dead. Everyone was in awe, we read. Yeah, I bet they were. No inquiry, no repercussions, no recommendations to be implemented. This unity business is hard. For us, we are still working out our answer to that question of, what next? What does it mean to live and walk with Christ? What does it mean to live in unity with our kindred? And yes, we're still working out what it means for us in our little bit of the church, what the implications are, and I guess we'll probably never stop working that out. For us, we're definitely in favour of unity the church as a whole and among us as an individual part of the church. But I think we're agreed that we don't feel called to hold everything in common like the early church. We're not generally in favour of church members selling everything they have so it can be shared out. We're also agreed that we don't all need to be the same to be united. We don't need to look the same or think the same or love the same. In fact, quite the reverse. We are, like our Australian cousins, uniting around our diversity. We're seeing it as a process, a verb, not a historical deed like an act of union. And yes, we desire unity. We cling to our corporate worship, the things we could do together. We can't wait for the Sunday morning or evening when we meet all together once again. But we cherish our differences, our individuality, our own choices, our singular callings, our own personal relationship with God. And we know we have only really started working out what it means to recognize our diversity properly. The church is behind society on this one. I want to tell you about a part of our Methodist heritage that I suspect most of you aren't aware of. George Whitfield was one of the Wesley's contemporaries as members of the Holy Club in Oxford, and later one of the founders of our church. He rather relished a debate, and I suspect if he were around today, he would be called a controversialist. He once wrote, the more I am opposed, the more joy I feel. As a traveling preacher, he was not a seeker after consensus. He died in 70, 1770, aged 55, and John Wesley preached a sermon in his memory. 
In this sermon, Wesley downplayed the theological differences he and Whitfield had had. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature, Wesley preached. In these, we may think and let think. We may agree to disagree. Later, writing to Charles, John used that phrase again. If you agree with me, well. If not, we can, as Mr Whitfield used to say, agree to disagree. It's remarkable, but these are the first recorded instances of this phrase being used. Agreeing to disagree was something, it was not something we invented, but it was evidently a value cherished at the very inception of our church. What a magnificent thing to discover. I'm especially pleased because it was Madeline who discovered it and told me about it. We have to agree to disagree every time we have a debate. Every time a motion is passed or a vote taken, every time someone says they really feel the need to say something, we know that other people, our friends, our family, our colleagues, even you, my fellow members, we're not all going to see eye to eye on everything, but it doesn't matter. We agree to disagree. And it's not just fundamental to our human relationships. The same thing underpins diplomacy. Countries agreeing to respect each other's differences. It's the basis of peace between nations. And the same is true of democracy. Just see what happens as it did at the US Capitol in January when losing sides in an election don't accept that they didn't win, even though they held their views deeply. Our understanding of democratic society depends on this. And the ability to agree to disagree should be more celebrated. It's not like there are no threats to it. There's the temptations of partisanship, those forces which are enticing the Western world with a guilty pleasure of being fired up by something you already agree with. It's something I really wish the UK's broadcasting regulator, Ofcom, had taken more seriously when it was deliberating about whether to license partisan TV news channels. Some of them are due to start broadcasting in the UK in the next few months. Now, there's no harm in having access to a multiplicity of views, but that's generally not what these operations are about. They want to reinforce positions and entrench views, all with the goal of gaining dedicated followers. Taken to its extreme, as we've seen, this kind of approach gets people so entrenched, they're prepared to man the barricades, and not just metaphorically. You know, hearing our virtual choir on Good Friday singing from the St. Matthew Passion reminded me of the depth and beauty of harmony, especially when, as Bach shows, notes are brought up against other notes which don't naturally sound harmonious together. But add the context, the progression of the chords, and despite the conflicts and disharmonies, we come to the same place, to a resolution. What comes after disharmony? How is unity restored? 
the broadcaster Tom Service examined this in a programme about how harmony works recently. After the dissonance of Schoenberg, he turned to the resolution that's so familiar to us, the plagal cadence, the classic Amen. There are many different kinds of Amen, not just the classic ones. In fact, in February, there was a, a competition, a World Cup of Amens, where musicians and composers and singers and organists attempted to reach agreement on which was the most moving. The point is, though, that unity can come out of disunity. And for us, every time we say or sing Amen, we are living that. We don't often stop to think what we mean when we say Amen. So be it, truly, exactly, indeed. We agree, even when we disagree. That's living together in unity. Amen. <laughs>